Have you ever had someone advise you, never tell God what you're never going to do? And they tell you that because they say, if you say, God, I'm never going to do that, that's what God is going to do. You ever heard that? So for that reason, there's a lot of young people, even older people, when they start praying, they're afraid to pray, God, I'll go where you want me to go, I'll say what you want me to say, I'll be where you want me to be, because they're afraid if I say that, God will send me to some third world country in the backside of Africa or someplace where they live in huts and wear no clothes, and I don't want to go there. Um, well, I don't think God really does that to everybody who says, I'll never go there. If, however, he did do that to me. <laughs> Forty years ago, I stood with three or four young men here, and I said, I'll never move to California. And then I thought, unless God sends me. I thought that would get me off the hook. Well, God sent me, and we spent 18 months, and, but the, thank the Lord he delivered us and brought us back out of that foreign country, and we're back here in the state of Washington. Um, in the material that I use for pre-marriage counseling and marriage counseling, there's, a, uh, there's one section that has to do with conflict resolution, and I always spend at least one session. Some people, they get two sessions, um, because that's why they were there, because there was conflict and they didn't know how to solve it. Uh, but one of the tools that I use is something I got from uh, John Maxwell a long time ago, uh, the 20 rules for fighting fair. 20 rules for fighting fair. And, and we go through that and we talk about the 20 rules for fighting fair. Um, and by the way, if, if you said you've been married for 60 some years and never had an argument, there's an issue. <laughs> John Maxwell said, if two people who live together never have an argument, that means one of us is unnecessary. Anyway, in one of those 20 rules is this. And I give an absolute to say, never use absolutes when you're in an argument. Never say, you always do this, or you never do that. Because if you say you never do that, you always do that, now you become historical. Not hysterical, historical. You've brought up every wrong that they've ever done, and you've lost sight of solving the conflict that's before you today. So, when one of us says never, the other one will say that's a long, long time. Because we don't want to use absolutes. In our lesson text today, God uses an absolute. And that's okay because God made a covenant that he will never break. He will never break. That's an absolute truth. He will never break. We are picking up our study in the book of Genesis and the story of Jonah or Noah as his family and he and the floating zoo are disembarking. They are leaving the boat, the house, the ark that they've been on for one year and ten days. 
Now, when they got on that boat, I'm pretty sure that 450 feet of boat seemed like we are on a huge ship. But if you've been confined for a year and 10 days with seven other people and 125,000 animals and birds and creepy crawly critters, 450 feet probably seems pretty small. We are ready to get off this boat. Um, It's hard to know what was going on in their minds because they know when they get off that boat, the world is not the same as it was when they left. They are the only survivors left. I mean, whoa. What a what a thought that must have been. And the rains came down and the fountains came up and everyone was drowned. We don't know what they were thinking. We don't know what they were saying to one another. But what we do know is what Noah did first. When he put his foot on dry ground after a year and ten days, the first thing he did, well, it's in verse 20 of Genesis 8, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Noah's first act was to worship God. His first act on being released from the ark was to worship God. He built an altar. Now in my imagination, and I want to make this clear, this is my imagination. I hear Noah saying to his son, Young men, I want you to find some stones about this size and we're going to stack them together and we're going to build an altar big enough and strong enough to hold the carcass of numerous animals as we bring them and offer them as a sacrifice to God. And the four of them built the altar and they began to worship God. A blessed life begins with putting God first. A blessed life begins with putting God first. It's a principle that we see all through scriptures and in the lives of believers throughout the centuries of time. In the Sermon on the Mount, one of the subjects that Jesus tackles is the necessities of life. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? He said, do not be anxious about these things. He said, look at the birds of the air. They don't plant any seeds. They don't harvest any crops. They don't build any barns. Yet the Heavenly Father makes sure that they have every meal. How much more will He make sure that you have it? Then He said, uh, look at the lilies of the field. Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as finely as the lilies of the field. If God does that for them, 
how much more will he do that for you? Do not be anxious about anything, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The reason that Noah and his family were saved in the flood that judged the rest of the world is because Noah walked with God. He put the Lord in the place of preeminence in his heart. He made him the Lord of every part of his heart. Letter B, Noah's offering expressed his gratitude. Noah's offering expressed his gratitude. What an important part of our spiritual life and journey. To be people who are grateful. Noah's offering, the first thing he did was an indication he understood we are here because of the grace of God. God. And it's God's grace and His grace alone. And having a heart of gratitude will keep that thought in the forefront of your mind. I am here today. You are here today because of the grace of God and only because of the grace of God. I don't care how young you are, how old you are. It's the grace of God that has brought us together. It's the grace of God that gave you breath to breathe today. Amen? Every day needs to be someplace in that day. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me your love, your life. Perhaps you've read the story in Luke chapter 17 where Jesus is walking the the boundary between Galilee and Samaria. That's where the road was. And they're going by one of those smaller villages and there's ten men standing off in the distance and they start yelling and they recognize Him. Somebody tells them, that's Jesus. Jesus, have mercy on us. They have to stand over there because they're lepers. And lepers were not allowed to come in contact with other people. They were quarantined from people. And Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest. You see, if you had any skin condition, you were quarantined until you went to the priest and he looked at you and said, all right, you're clean. And they offered a sacrifice and thank God for your being healed. The ten of them are on the way to see the priest. When they look at their skin, and lo and behold, the leprosy is gone. And you remember the story. One of them turns around and comes back and falls at the feet of Jesus and gives him thanks for healing his body. You remember what Jesus said? Didn't I say ten of you? Where's the other nine? If we are not careful, we can be one of the nine and lose a sense of gratitude for what God has done for us. Gratitude is a vital element of a blessed life. It is a vital element of a blessed life to live with a heart of gratitude, a heart of thanksgiving. You say, you don't know how hard my life is. You don't know what I'm going through. No, I don't, but God does. 
And he still gives this command in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in... Three people read. Give thanks in... All circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In the good, the bad, the ugly, give thanks. Why would I do that? Because there's another promise in the Scripture that says, and we know that the good, the bad, the ugly, all works together for good because God is using it to make me more like Jesus. Gratitude is a vital part of our blessed life. If you don't have a heart of gratitude, you'll end up being like the Israelites who are whiners and complainers. And God calls that sin. Going on. That wasn't in my notes. It just came out. Noah's offering expressed his commitment to God. Noah's offering expressed his commitment to God. Now, I I know that we aren't given the full details of how the offerings were to be offered until uh, Moses comes to uh, Mount Sinai. God gives him the law, the Ten Commandments, and the law that the Israelites were going to live by. But I believe that God showed Adam the proper way, and he showed Abel, and it went on down through the centuries. And they knew that that this is how the offering was supposed to go. When you bring a sacrifice to the altar, we read later on that the, the, the worshiper would lay their hands upon the head of that animal on the altar, or on the carcass of that animal, indicating this animal represents me. You see, the problem is we can't kill ourselves and then go on to serve Christ. We need a substitute. And those animals were a picture of Jesus, the ultimate substitute. But they would lay their hands on them. This is is indicative of my heart today as I come to worship you. A burnt offering was totally consumed by the fire. It all went to God. So when he offers these burnt offerings, Noah was presenting himself to God again. Here I am, Lord. By your grace, I will walk with you. By your grace, I will walk in obedience. When he puts his foot on dry ground, he said, I want to renew my intention to walk with you, to be obedient to you. We have sang the song hundreds of times and we'll probably sing it another hundreds of times because it's a prayer that I think we need to pray every day. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I'll live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me. We used to sing all that I have and all that I am and all I will ever be. Lord, I surrender it all to you. Noah's offering expressed his ongoing need for forgiveness. His ongoing need for forgiveness. God declares in the Word, and I believe that He instructed Adam and Eve when He made clothes for them, without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. 
knowing that they were not perfect people. They were there because of God's grace, and they were going to sin because they're people. Offered the blood sacrifice. God, wash us with your blood, cover us with your blood, give us the power of the blood. The blood of those animals was all looking forward to what we look backwards to when Jesus shed his blood for our sins. Noah's worship pleased the Lord. Noah's worship pleased the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, I want to think it smelled like a barbecue, but if you're burning the whole carcass, I'm not sure what it smelled like a barbecue. But it was pleasing to the Lord. And every time that worshipers in the Old Testament brought an offering to God and burned it, when they did it with the right heart, God said, that's a sweet-smelling savor. That's a fragrance. I, I love that. However, when you read the prophets and people were worshiping idols every other day of the week, and then they would come to the day of worship and offer a burnt offering to God, God said, it stinks. King James says, it's a stench in my nostrils. I don't want any more blood of goats and lambs and whatever. I don't want it. It stinks. because Why? Because their heart wasn't right. We no longer bring animals for a sacrifice when we come to church. How many are glad about that? It was a bloody bloody affair. I mean, when I read it that in the Passover time that there would be as many as 100,000 lambs killed, we're talking, that's a lot of blood. Jesus, once and for all, offered the sacrifice. I love what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That was a sacrifice that was a sweet-smelling offering before the Father. And so today, we please the Father when we put our faith totally in that one who died for us, in Jesus Christ. When he became the final sacrifice that the law demanded, it's by faith in Jesus we please the Father. By faith in Jesus we please the Father. A faith that walks in love of Jesus, love of people, a faith that walks in obedience to His words and the leading of the Holy Spirit. We are saved by grace, not by works. But because we're saved by grace, we live by grace, we are going to do the will of God and obey the Word of God. And that becomes a sweet-smelling fragrance in the nostrils of God. Noah offered burnt offerings. And so, let's see God's response. Reading verse 21 again. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. God made a covenant. He made a covenant with himself. The Lord said in his heart, I will never do these things. We call it the Noahic covenant, the Noah covenant, because it was a response to Noah's worship. It was, and to Noah's walking with God before the flood. And, and, and back in chapter 6, verse 18, God said, I will make a covenant with you, Noah, and your wife and your children. But when we get to the end of chapter 8, in the first 17 verses of chapter 9, God defines that covenant. He broadens that covenant. He gives us more details about that covenant. Now, this is not the first covenant that God has made, even though chapter 6 is the first time we see the word, but he made a covenant with Adam and Eve when he dispelled them from the garden. Now he makes one with Noah. Later on, he's going to make one with Abraham that he reiterates with Isaac and Jacob. Then there will be the covenant reiterated with Moses and the Israelites. And then it's renewed with David and takes on a few more connotations of who Christ is for us. Then there's that final covenant. The New Testament means the new covenant. Sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the covenant that God made in our behalf that we might have eternal life. But the Noah covenant is worthy of a look. And for the next two weeks, we're going to take a short look at it. Um, I can't cover it all in one week the way I want to. Does that surprise anybody? But I've got a couple points that I want to point out this morning. First of all, the covenant was unilateral. The covenant was unilateral. Great word if you're playing Scrabble and get a triple score space or something like that. When's the last time you used that word in a daily conversation? Unilateral. I was pretty sure I knew what it meant, but I looked it up in the dictionary just to make sure because I didn't want to make a fool of myself this morning. It means this, performed by only one person. Performed by only one person. It was a covenant created by one. Now, most covenants that we are familiar with, that we make, for example, the marriage ceremony is a covenant. And each person in this marriage relationships makes a statement in covenant. He says, I will take you to be my wedded wife, to heaven to hold, to love and to cherish, sickness and health, till death to his partner, all of that stuff. Richer for poor, better for worse. And both of them, they make, you go to the bank to get a loan, you enter into a covenant. You have your part, they have their part. You both sign your names at the bottom of the covenant. This one is unilateral. In fact, God makes it with himself in behalf of others, but there's nobody else signing the contract here, nobody else signing the covenant. It's God. If you read on in chapter, uh, the end of the chapter 8 and into chapter 9, God said, I will never, neither will I, God blessed, I give, I establish my covenant. He says that twice. The covenant I'm making, I will set my rainbow as a sign of the covenant. I will remember my everlasting covenant. It was all God. 
verse 17 of chapter 9 said this, God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the sign I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The covenant was all God. I know I said that before, but it's important for us to understand God's love for mankind. God moved in our behalf. Every other religion that I've done any reading about, the people, they do something in order to put God, their God, in their debt. Because I did this, my God will do this. For example, you can read in history, you can even read in the Bible, pagan nations, when they were going to go to war, in order to gain the favor of their God, they would offer one of their children as a sacrifice. They'd throw them in the fire, they'd cut off their head. or So whatever their God's name is, this is what we've done to entreat you to help us. Now you're beholden to us. That's not the way it works with God and Jesus Christ, the only living God. We don't bargain with God. You say, we don't? No. Well, I know you tried, but we don't. Why? We have nothing with which to bargain with. We have nothing. What do you got that God needs? What do you have that God doesn't have? We need Him. Oh, how we need Him. God established the covenant according to His own pleasure. Number two, the covenant was based on grace. It was based on grace. He said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God did not say, I will never destroy the earth again because mankind is now sinless, because now they fear me and put me first in their lives. No, I'm making this promise because they're sinners. The intention of their heart is evil from its youth. The psalmist said, I was born in sin and shapen in iniquity. You did not have to cheat your children to sin. We were born sinners. This verse here is one of the verses that we use to show that, that the depravity of man. The depravity of man. We, you're all born sinners. We all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Yet in grace, God said, I will never again judge the world with a universal flood. I will not interrupt the orbit and revolution of the earth. The seasons will continue. There will be a time for plowing, a time for planting, a time for harvesting. Day and night will continue just as I created them. Something to think about. The flood did not improve us. The flood did not improve us. The planet had a long bath. Only eight people survived. And as good a man as Noah was, he was not sinless. He was still a human being in need of the grace of God. Thus the altar, the sacrifice. How does punishment work? 
What does punishment accomplish? Wakes somebody up to what's going on. It puts a temporary hold on some unacceptable behavior. But I have to ask my question, does punishment change us? Does punishment change us? I know children who receive biblical-type corporal punishment often. That's a spanking. And everything else that goes along with discipling your children, grounding them, taking away their car, all of those things. And I can show you kids that, that that didn't change them at all. They just got sneakier. I believe that change is a result of love. And here's why I believe that. We are commissioned to go into the world and preach the... What's gospel mean? The good news. What is the good news? You're damned and go into hell? The good news is God so loved the world that you don't have to go to a place that's prepared. It's about... The love of God. God loves you so much that He sent His own Son to die for you. Oh, we need to preach about hell. Jesus preached about hell. But the message that changes people's hearts, God loves you. God loves you. Now, I realize there's, a, there's people who've been given a vision of hell and the vision literally scared the hell out of them and they got saved. But the majority of people who get saved, Paul wrote it this way in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's why John wrote, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son, that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's love that changes us, knowing that we are loved. It's love that changes us, knowing that we are loved and responding to that love. I love what John wrote in his first epistle. We love Him, why? Because He first loved us. I love him because it was revealed to my heart he loves me. I think of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. For 11 chapters, he gives the greatest exhortation on what salvation is, how to be saved, why we need to be saved, how we get saved. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, therefore, and that's King James, he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the love of God, by the grace of God. Look at what he did for you. Because of that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Jesus, you died for me, so I'm going to live for you. That's the ultimate line there. He died for us, live for him. Let us see, we are living in the age of grace. We are living in the age of grace. 
while God's judgment is being, re- is being released in certain places on certain people on a daily basis. That's what Romans tells us in the first two chapters. People are... They're, uh, God has made a covenant not to destroy all of mankind and the world as we know it with the universal flood. Now Peter tells us there is coming the day when this heaven and this earth will be consumed with a fervent heat and a fire, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. There is another judgment day coming. But between now and then, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be... It's the day of grace. The covenant is eternal. The covenant is eternal. Reading verse... 21 and 22 again, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. In this case, eternal means as long as the earth endures. Not as long as God is eternal, but as long as the earth endures. Because as I said a few moments ago, there's coming a day when this earth will be gone as it is now. There'll be a new earth. There'll be a new heaven. All of this will be burned up in a fire. But until then, though there will be floods in various places, there will be destruction from those local floods, God said there will never be another flood that encircles the whole world and covers all the mountains. Never. In these two verses, 22 and 23, three times God says never. Never again will I curse the earth. He did that in Adam's day. What he's saying there is, I'm not going to add anything more to the, the weeds and, and the thorns and you're having to work hard. He left that one alone. Never again will I destroy all the living creatures. Day and night will never cease until our salvation is complete. Because the Scripture tells me, in the book of Revelation, when we get to where Jesus has prepared for us, there will be no night, there will be no sun, there will be no moon, because He will be the light. We'll be living in eternal light. I don't understand all that, but that's what the Scripture says. In chapter 9, as we read more about the covenant next week, more, several times God is going to repeat, I will never destroy the earth and mankind with a universal flood. Now when God says never, it's not like when you and I say never. Anyone ever done something that proved to be less than the smart thing to do and you said, well, I learned my lesson, I'll never do that again. How did you do with that vow? Or you saw somebody else do something really that didn't look very, I'll never do that. And next thing you know, we can all relate to Peter. The Last Supper, Jesus said, all of you are going to, you know, turn away from me tonight. You're all going to leave me. You're all going to abandon me. And Peter said, you know, These guys, they might do that. But me? I'll die for you. 
I will never disown you. I will never disown you. Capital N-E-E-D-E-R. Big, I'll never. And all the rest of them said, neither will we. It wasn't ten hours later. Three times the man who said, I'll never, did. Say, I don't know this man. And went out and wept bitterly. You see, it's only God who can say never and stick to it. It's only God who can say never and stick to it. This is not the only place in the Bible where God says never. There are some precious promises that God makes to us that come with a never. We started the message with this one, and I want to show you a passage of Scripture that says it as well. God will never break His covenant. God will never break His covenant. Judges 2.1 The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I have brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. I promised you. And that promise started with Father Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, God speaking to Abram before his name is Abraham. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land your sojourn of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Over and over, the children of Abraham broke covenant. They did not keep their half of it. They went off into idolatry. They ignored God. They hardened their hearts toward God. They murmured and complained about God. But God said, I will never break my covenant. There's a story that I enjoy reading in, in Numbers chapter 23. Very interesting story in the life of Israel and their journey in the wilderness because they disobeyed God and didn't go in and, and take the land. And at this particular time, they, they're, they're camped on the plains of Moab. And the Moabites and the king of Moab looks at these millions of people out there and said, they're going to wipe us off the planet. They're going to we got to do something about him. So he comes up with a great idea. I will call for a prophet to come and to curse them. That'll take care of him. So he hires a man named Balaam. You remember that story? And Balaam comes and says, well, first Balaam said, I can't go. The Lord said not to. And he kept, well, we'll give you more money. And the, and the money got high enough that, all right, go but you're going to say only what I say. And so the first thing he does is he blesses them. And the king said, I, that's not what I hired you for. Here, let me stand someplace where you don't see so many. Maybe it'll be easier. And the second time, he says these words. Now, I believe these are God's words. Balaam said these are God's words. Number 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God, when he speaks, he keeps his word. 
Israel was God's covenant people. God said, I will not break covenant. God says He will never let the righteous fall. He will never let the righteous fall. Psalms 5.22 says this, Cast your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. The new, newer NIV says, He'll not let the righteous be shaken. The ESV said, He will not let the righteous be moved. I love to sing the song that we haven't sang for quite a while, but He is my rock, my shield, my fortress. He's my salvation, my strength. The cords of death, they were surrounding me, but He heard my cry for help. He is my refuge, my high tower. He's my deliverer so strong. The snares of death were confronting me, but He heard my cry for help. So I'll stand in trust. I'll stand in faith. I will not be shaken. Our God will not be moved. Our God will never change. Our God will reign forever. So I'll stand and trust. I'll stand in faith. I will not be shaken. Because He said, I will never let the righteous fall. Jesus used the word never several times in promises that He made. And when Jesus speaks, you can take it to the bank. You can plant your faith on it and let it grow. Jesus said those who follow Him will never be hungry or thirsty. They will never be hungry or thirsty. And of course, He's not talking about the physical. He's talking about a spiritual hunger, a spiritual thirst. And we know that because of the context it's taken from. In John chapter 6, the day after feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. That night after the banquet, Jesus and the disciples went across the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Tiberias. People come in the next morning, wanting another free lunch. He's not there. They find boats. They walk around the lake, whatever. They come and find Him. And when they get to Him and they begin to talk to Him with hopes of bread and fish, Jesus said, you need to be more concerned about the food that leads to eternal life. And then he said in verse 35 of chapter 6, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. If you backtrack a couple chapters in John, to chapter 4 where Jesus goes to the well in Sychar, and confronts the woman who's coming to draw water in the middle of the day and give me water to drink. You're talking to me, a, a Jewish man, a Samaritan woman. What's the deal? He said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me of water to drink. And then he said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. She said, give me this water. And something happened. The deep longing in our heart that all of us have. Solomon said God placed eternity in our hearts. Every human being has a longing that can only be fulfilled by
by the presence of Jesus Christ. A hunger that can only be satisfied by Jesus living inside of my heart, dwelling inside of me. A thirst that can only be quenched because He is here. And He said, when I'm dwelling in you, there will be a well of living water springing up from inside of you. Jesus promised, if we put our faith in Him, we will never die. We will never die. You find that covenant in John chapter 11. You read the story of Lazarus, brother to Mary and Martha in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, a place where Jesus spent time with friends. They would minister, they would feed him and his entourage, and he would share teachings with them. One day, the ladies sent word to Jesus, who was on the other side of the Jordan River because the Jews were trying to kill him. Lazarus is sick. You need to come. You need to come. You need to come and pray for him. Come and heal him. He's really sick. Jesus waited another three days. Then he says to the twelve, we need to go to Bethany. Lazarus sleeps. Oh, he's better? Oh, no, he's dead. We need to go. Remember Thomas said, well, let's go die with him. Speaking because they knew that they were going to try to kill Jesus when they got there. When they come to Bethany, somebody let Martha and Mary, before Jesus got to the house, Jesus is in town. Martha leaves the home where the grievers are and Mary and goes to meet Jesus. You remember the first thing she said to him? If you would have been here, he would not have died. But the reality is he's already in the grave four days by the time Jesus gets there. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Oh, I know, in the great resurrection, we'll all rise again. And then he said to her these words, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? How many believe that this morning? 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. This body that I live in, one day will expire unless Jesus comes first. And somebody will be given the task to put me in that hole that Jeff dug. but I won't be in that box just the temple that I lived in I will be in the presence of the Lord Dottie Rambo wrote I'll fall asleep and wake in God's new heaven sheltered in the arms of God because Jesus said if I believe in him as my Lord and Savior I will never die. I will have eternal life. Do you have eternal life this morning? Jesus promised those who believe in Him will never be alone. Those who believe in Him will never be alone. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 
regardless of Amazon days, Black Friday, Black Thursday, whatever. Be content with us because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That promise was made in the final days of, of Moses' life before he hands the baton to Joshua and goes up on the mountain where God does whatever God did with him. He's speaking to these people of Israel, the people who were under 20 years of age when they came to Kadesh Barnea, and now they're going to go into the promised land. And he says to them in verse 6 of chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then he turns to Joshua. Verse 8 says, The Lord Himself goes before you, and He will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Isaiah is given a great promise in the 43rd chapter in the second verse. When you pass through the waters, God said, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The reason we read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel is to prove that this promise is true. Circumstances were grim. Nebuchadnezzar kept his word. If you do not bow, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace that we've had heated seven times hotter than we have it normal. God said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. If you go through the fire, I will be with you. They must have heard that message because they said, O king, we will not bow. Our God is able to deliver us, but if not, we're still not going to bow. The men who cast them into the fire died from the heat inhalation. The ropes that bound them were burned off. But their clothes was not burned. Their hair was not singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. And they end up taking a stroll in the fiery furnace with a fourth man. Because Jesus said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He didn't say you'll never go through the fire. He didn't say you'll never go through the flood. But he did say this, I will never leave you alone. Never. Daniel slept in the lion's den. And he said to the king, the angel of the Lord came and shut their mouths. Well, come out of there. And then they threw the Chaldeans in the, in the, the pit. And before they could land, the lions devoured them. The Lord said, I will never leave you alone or forsake you. The promise to each and every believer this morning is the same. And you need to write it down in your notes. I am never alone. And you need to keep repeating that to yourself because there's days you're going to feel all alone. There might be months you feel all alone, but that's not the truth. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So lift your eyes 
Lift your eyes beyond the circumstance. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Doesn't matter what circumstances, you can say David's words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. I want you to see the level of intensity to the promise that God made. When you look at it, as if we were to look at it in the Hebrew and, and diagram the sentence, the Amplified Bible does that for us. And it took me three slides. It's on your notes. But let your character or moral disposition be free from love of money, including greed, avarice, lust, craving for earthly possessions, and be satisfied with your present circumstances and with what you have. And then it goes on to say, For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down, relax my hold on you, assuredly not. And then I added one more word, never, never. When God says never, it means never. The promise is to every person who's a child of God. The person who puts their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Romans 9 and 10 tells us that in order to become a child of God, I must confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised Him from the dead. He's my Lord. It starts with a prayer. Jesus, forgive me. I believe you died for me. Come into my heart and my life. By your grace, help me to live for you the rest of my life.